Are you ready for the word this morning? Come on, let's stand together as we read from Exodus chapter 17. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was. When Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, reveal yourself to us today. Show us your glory and teach us your ways and give us victory over everything that would keep us from worshiping you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so listen, I just want to tell you kind of one of my little secrets when I go to spend time reading in the Bible you know, everybody does that. Everyone has your way of doing that. And, and I love to get into it and, and find out more of God's character. And yeah, I look at the commentaries. I, I look at the original language. I study the timelines. But the, I think the number one thing that I do when I'm looking into God's word is I ask a question over and over and over. When I look at each passage that I read, I ask, why? Why this way? Why this person? Why at this time? You know, I've got a couple of little kids, and if you spend any time with Mila and Noah, you're going to be asked a lot of questions, right? Where do rocks come from? Daddy, where do my, how are my bones? What are inside my bones? Why is the sky up there? I mean, all day long, especially when they're supposed to be going to bed. Questions, questions all the time. And when I read this passage, I ask the question, why? Why this way? I mean, first of all, they have not even gotten into the promised land. This is not a battle to capture the promised land. This is like a prelude. This is the like opening credits at the beginning of the story. They just got out of slavery, and already they have to fight. I mean, they're just taking a walk. Here, look, look, Amalek, we're on a 40-year walk out here. We're not bugging you. Leave us alone. Unprovoked, they are attacked by the Amalekites. They're trying to kill them. And next, I got to wonder, well, why this way? There's nowhere else in Scripture where a battle is fought using this tactic. And next... Why fight at all, right? I mean, why not just like wake up one day and instead of being slaves in Egypt, like poof, they wake up and they're in the promised land and it's all done, like transported overnight. I mean, could God do that? Yes, he could do that, of course. So why not? Why didn't he do that? Well, let's take a look at what we know about the Hebrew people at this time, this generation. Their faith 
was a roller coaster. I mean, one minute they're ooing and aahing, they're, they're seeing amazing things, and then the next minute they're plunging, they're screaming, their eyes are bugging out of their heads, right? They're in a panic, they're twisting this way and that way, and, and God is getting sick of this roller coaster ride, right? They watch him completely defeat the armies of Pharaoh, and they had a great worship service when they watched all that water crash over them. It was one of those worship services that you just talk about for like days and days afterward, right? They were singing, they were dancing, some people were crying, some people were laughing. It was awesome. But then as soon as they experience a problem, boom, right? Ready to kill Moses, wondering if God's even here with us. And before we get all self-righteous and, you know, look down at these faithless complainers, we need to remember that the Bible is a mirror. How many times have we prayed, oh God, get me out of this, get me out of this circumstance, instead of praying, get the fear of this situation out of me. I mean, how many times have you just kind of daydreamed about getting airlifted out of your problems, right? Why didn't God just poof, take you to heaven like right away, get you out of the problems, get you out of this world and just transplant you into his presence, right? There's so many answers to the questions, why doesn't he just get us out of the problem? But the secret answer to all of the whys that I have found boils down to this one answer. It's for our good. Every time. I said it's for our good. Every time. If we don't experience the scary things with God, then we can never really know that he gives us a peace that defies explanation. If we don't experience a loss, we will never find out that God truly is our provider. If we don't experience a rejection, then we will never find out that God is, in fact, faithful to open his arms and embrace us with his overwhelming, unexplainable, unfailing, unearned, unrivaled love. It's for our good. Because one day, when we do hit the promised land, what a day of rejoicing that's going to be. But if we just get there and we never fought a battle along the way, well, then we don't experience walking by faith and not by sight, right? We wind up being like what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder receives a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved. But like somebody barely escaping through a wall of flames... We build our life and our faith right here, right now, in our time, in our generation. We've got no use for that kind of faith in heaven because what you build here on earth is tested in the fire and what remains you get to keep. But why? I mean, who cares? Once we hit heaven, we're looking right at God. We're seeing the angels. We're on the team. It's done. But you see, God is looking for something right here on earth from us. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And it says right there, he's a rewarder. It's in God's nature. 
He doesn't want you to just barely skate on into heaven. No, he's a rewarder. He wants you to get the ribbons and the medals and the crowns. And even more than that, he wants you to begin to experience some of those rewards right here and right now in your life on earth. He wants people to experience victory in their lives right now. And when I dig into this passage, I discovered something. I discovered that God just handed us a no-fail battle strategy that we can use today. Guaranteed victory over the enemy. Are you excited by that? Is anybody excited by that? He just gave away the secret, and I'm going to give it to you. But first, we need to identify who the enemy is. So let's profile that. Here we see the Hebrew people are being attacked by the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. Now, some of you might remember Esau is the guy who trades his inheritance for a bowl of beans, right? This is an unprovoked attack. And the Amalekites uh, represent something. They represent everything in this world that is violently opposed to God's authority, opposed to spiritual things, opposed to worship. This attack came in a place of divine rest and provision after yet another outburst of complaining from God's people. Instead of trusting God for what they needed, instead of doing something just as basic as help us God, like praying for help, no, they go to Moses and they start complaining and they start demanding that, Moses, you do something. Moses, you fix this. And they allowed their fear and their anxiety to rule their emotions. And blame and complaints were flying everywhere. I know you've never experienced anything like that, but try to imagine. And in spite of this display of immaturity, you know, and faithlessness, God provides water for everybody. And it's, it's in this momentary, you know, peace and satisfaction and comfort that suddenly God's people are violently attacked. And first, the Amalekites, they move in for the easy pickings, right? They go against the weak. They, they come up against those who are lagging behind, and they begin to kill and slaughter. And then they muster up for a full-on frontal attack on God's people. And this aggressive violation by the bloodthirsty Amalekites is going to be the first. This is the first of many, even after, you know, hundreds of years, and they are existing in the promised land. You see throughout the book of Judges that the Amalekites come in, they raid, they plunder, they harass God's people. Every time they start backsliding and they get into idolatry and these pagan practices, and even the first king of Israel is rebuked by God for disobeying a direct command to wipe out the Amalekites as a long-delayed moment of justice for the very event that we are reading about this morning. And even though this king retains his title, God withdraws his Holy Spirit from Saul. And in a tragic turn of events, in a battle, all of Saul's sons are killed, and Saul is mortally wounded, And rather than face the abuse and torture of the Philistines, Saul kills himself. And ironically, it is an Amalekite that comes and takes Saul's crown from off of his body. And that Amalekite brings it over to David, hoping for a reward. But what does David do? Kills him for touching God's chosen king. And this is what that Amalekite said to David. So I stood over him and I killed him because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. You see, 
that flesh nature has no fear of God, has no understanding of God, has no respect for God. The Amalekites symbolize for us today what the New Testament calls the flesh, the carnal man. And that is tied to the thinking and the patterns and the system of this fallen world. They are everything that talks about give me immediate gratification and selfish ambition. They are everything that rejects the ways of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Jesus Christ. They are incapable of worship. And in all these cases, the goal of Satan is the goal of the Amalekites, to diminish or kill worship. Because you remember the story of them being freed from slavery in Egypt, right? God sends his servant Moses to speak to Pharaoh. And the message to the Pharaoh is, let my people go that they may come and worship me. Jesus warns us in Revelation chapter 3, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. This is a fight, people. You are in a war. Did you know that? A war with Amalek. And someone's going to win and someone is going to lose. Amalek didn't come around to just poke a stick and run away. No, he comes up to kill and to steal and to destroy. Amalek wants to end you. He wants to take your stuff. He wants to wear your crown. And either you slay Amalek now as your Lord commands or he will bring you down. And he will kill you and he will take your stuff. And we face off every day against a triple threat, the triple threat of the world and the flesh and the devil. But even all three of these enemies ganging up together, they don't stand a chance against the power that is working inside of us. Come on, give God praise. The world is a junkyard. A junkyard with junkyard dogs fighting over scraps. And the entire value system of this world is opposed to God's authority. It's opposed to God's love and care for people. The system of this world seeks to devalue you, seeks to devalue your money. It seeks to turn you into a number, into a commodity, into a faceless statistic. Don't get caught up in that crazy Remember the words of the apostle. He says, every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. You are winning. Turn to somebody and say, I'm winning. We don't operate under that value system because our premise is entirely different. Our decisions, our actions, our attitudes, our values, they all begin from a place of faith in God and in his ways and his kingdom. And we not only live in the enemy's territory, we are living with the enemy. Don't look at your spouse. Don't look at your kids. Kids, don't look at your parents, okay? You are living with the enemy. And I'm, I'm talking about the enemy that looks back at you in the mirror, right? The flesh. The flesh is a zombie, and it's going to crawl up out of the dirt every day, and it's going to shuffle around the cobwebs of your brain, and it can only be put down when we live according to the Spirit. Colossians chapter 3, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking inside of you. Look, have nothing to do with sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. You might say, come on, give God praise. You might, 
you might say that we've met the enemy, and the enemy is us. Romans chapter 8, verse 6, the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. And in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. God wants you winning. God loves winning even more than Donald Trump. God wants his people to win and keep on winning over and over. And the devil himself is overcome when we actively resist. It said, the apostle James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And in Revelation chapter 12, they have defeated him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their life so much that they were afraid to die. Ephesians chapter 6 says, therefore take up the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground and having done everything, stand. And what I love about that passage in Ephesians is that even after you've exhausted every option, you've done everything that you could possibly think of, just know that your very existence poses a strategic threat to Satan and the kingdom of darkness. You just being there, you just existing, you just breathing is a threat to him and all of his power. Remember during the American Revolution that George Washington and the Continental Army, they lost several battles to the British Empire. But by persistence, by just continuing to exist, the British, they could not declare a victory, and they had to keep pouring men in, keep pouring resources in, pouring vital equipment and money into this fight, and eventually they were so thinned out, they could just not sustain the fight. And even when you feel depleted, even when you feel like you're worn out and tired and you've got nothing left to give and you're weary, stand your ground because you win just by existing, just by standing there and holding on to your faith in Jesus. Come on, give him praise. You commit yourself fully to him. You commit yourself because you are a weapon. Your faith is a weapon that Satan cannot defeat. He's got nothing against that weapon, your immovable faith. You just force him by standing there to keep pouring on his resources, and he's got nothing. He cannot defeat you. Joshua and the men under his command, they came out against the Amalekites with the edge of the sword. And that, to me, speaks of the power of husbands and fathers determined not to allow the Amalekites to take their crazy into my camp among my home and my family. These men put themselves between the threat and their loved ones, and they were saying, in order to get into my home, in order to get to my family, you're going to have to walk over my dead body. Not today, Amalekites. Not today. Come on, man. Are you excited by this story or what? I love it. And they closed the gap and they took the fight out to the enemy. And every worshiper of God under the authority of Jesus is commanded in Ephesians 6 to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that's the beauty of what Jesus models for us, right? After his baptism, it says that Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he's fasting for 40 days. And it says that Satan comes to him at a point of physical exhaustion to tempt Jesus. And does Jesus, like, blast Satan with lasers from his eyes? No, he didn't do that. Does Jesus open up the earth and just drop Satan right into hell? 
No, he didn't do that either. Does Jesus command the armies of God to come and put Satan under arrest? No. That day is coming. But for our sakes, Jesus defeated Satan using just one weapon, the word of God. And Jesus said it over and over, it is written, devil, and Satan had to leave. And Jesus did that to show you that you can do the exact same thing. You have that weapon. Know your weapon. Study your weapon. That weapon is your life. So take it up and use it and watch Satan turn and run. Come on, give God praise this morning. In combat or in law enforcement, someone lifting up their hands is a sign of surrender. And this is what I love about the Spirit. The beauty of the Holy Spirit is that he takes something that looks like weakness and turns it around and uses it for our victory, right? When you lift your hands, you know what Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong, right? When you surrender to God, then you are winning and the enemy is losing. Let's remember the fight here. Let's profile that. Remember Egypt? Remember that place, that place of slavery the Israelites would talk about? Oh, I wish I was back in Egypt where I was, you know, beaten and abused and a slave in chains. I wish I was back in Egypt where, you know, I was mistreated and, I, and didn't have a land of my own. Oh, that was the life. They loved remembering Egypt because guess what? There was no fight in Egypt. There was no salvation in their slavery either. But once they are freed guess what? Then comes the fight. Then comes the conflict. And the same is true with us. We didn't have to fight when we were living in slavery. We were in bondage to our desires. We were just led around by the chains of our desires, whatever we wanted. We were captivated by whatever we saw, right? And and until God came in to that dark place, that dark cell where he found you, and then he turns to you and says, come with me if you want to live, right? And then we ran to him. We, we were so grateful. We said, you saved me, Jesus. You freed me. Oh, it's so good to be free. Are you free this morning? And then what was the gift that he gave? What's the first gift that he gives? Armor and a sword. Ephesians chapter 6. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Wow, thanks. Yes, give God praise for his word this morning. You know, you received that gift, and maybe, you know, maybe some of you were thinking, oh, wow, God, thanks. I was kind of hoping for a mani-pedi at the palace. 
you know, I was hoping to get, you know, all posh and relaxed, you know, in, in heaven, but okay, this is nice. No, you got to have, you got to understand the warrior mindset to appreciate the gift of a weapon, right? If my wife buys me a gun or a rifle for Christmas, I'm going to be really excited about that. Some of y'all may not get excited about that, but God has given you weapons. It is a gift, right? And there's a reason why, because you are in a war and a good commander makes sure that his people have all the gear they need to be victorious. But victory doesn't come just because you're fighting. Constant fighting does not guarantee success. You need a key component. Every army needs a commanding officer. And our armed forces have the president. He is the commander-in-chief. And under him is the secretary of defense. And under him are the secretaries of the air force and of the army and et cetera, et cetera. And on on down the line until in every skirmish, every fight, every unit has a leader. Every unit has someone that they can look to for direction and to get commands from. And in this battle, the commanding officer is Moses. And his secretaries of defense are Aaron and Hur. And they head uphill. They go up to take up the high ground. Not to throw rocks at the Amalekites and not to run away, but to intercede, to get Almighty God involved, to do what my kids do when they feel scared or they feel vulnerable or they just, they're just tired and worn out and they lift their hands up to daddy, right? Maybe Moses, maybe Moses thought God was going to open up the ground underneath the Amalekites, or maybe Moses thought a, a wall of flame would come out just like they did against the Egyptians, or, or maybe God would throw boulders or bolts of lightning or something like that, but none of those miracles happen here in this instance. So why didn't God just burn them up? Here's the reason why. Because God knows that he's got to take a bunch of slaves and make conquerors out of them. How will you learn to be a conqueror if you've never been in a fight, if you've never been attacked? How could you ever become the heavyweight champion of the world if you're too scared to step in a ring and get punched on the nose? God wants to teach something to Joshua. He wants Joshua to learn and understand that he can, in fact, lead men, that he can organize and rally men and form them into fighting units that will go out and face the enemy and take the fight to the Amalekites. And this victory was going to be a template, a template for all the victories to come for God's people, a, co- a cooperation, a coordination of aggressive action, a supernaturally fueled by God's spirit and mediated by spiritual authority, upheld by those who support. Aaron and Hur, they were the force multipliers. And they went to, with Moses to let him know, Moses, you're not alone. Moses, we got your back. Ultimate victory will not have to be shouldered on your limited strength. And at this point in Moses' leadership, you know, if you remember the story of Moses' leadership, you know, he's been shouldering too many of the burdens alone. The conversation that he has with his father-in-law, Jethro, you remember the story where Jethro comes and and he watches Moses like all day, all night, just deliberating among the people and, and working out the arguments and cases. And he's like, what are you doing? You're going to wear yourself out and everybody else out in the process, right? You've got you to gotta divvy this up in a better way. That conversation has not happened yet. 
That comes in like the next chapter or two. But God allows in this circumstance, allows the weight of the supernatural to rest on the limitations of an 80-year-old Moses in this fight. And God allows Moses to see how his limitations directly affect the people that he leads. So that when this conversation with Jethro happens, Moses is able to hear the wisdom in his words. Aaron and Hur learn something in this situation, that by simply supporting spiritual authority, they were directly contributing to the success and the victory of the fight. I'm going to say that again. Just by supporting spiritual authority, they were directly affecting the outcome of the fight. Moses' arms holding up that staff, it was like a banner over those warriors. And in the middle of the blood and the screaming and the sweat and the pain, they would look up and catch a glimpse of Moses' hands up and feel that surge of strength and courage of God transforming them from slaves into the fiercest fighters that the Amalekites had ever encountered. It was not what the Amalekites were expecting. And when your kids and your family members and your friends see you worship God with your hands raised, you better believe that something changes on the inside of them. It's impacting everyone around you. Hebrews chapter 12, so take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. The strength for the victory did not come from the edge of a sword. It came from a staff. The power of the Spirit through our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not let go and let God see what happens. No, we're to engage. We are not to just sit there passively and watch whatever happened happen. No, we're to put our skin in the game. But we know that the source of our victory comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why, come on, give him praise in his house. And that truth is why God says, I want you to write this down. I want you to say it in Joshua's ear. Remember, Joshua, remember how this victory came about. Remember, Joshua, this was not you. I want you to remember, Joshua, that moment when you felt tired, you felt exhausted in the fight, you didn't know if you could keep on swinging that blade, but then the hands went up and a fresh wind of my spirit blew into you and you felt like a new man in that fight. Yeah, there's going to be more battles. There's going to be more battles, Joshua. And when you face the next threat, remember how this goes. Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And church, this is the time for Calvary Christian Center to let our shepherd, to let our Moses know and feel the support of the prayers, the support of God's people holding him up. Because, Pastor, we get it. We know you've been holding your hands up. You've been interceding for all of the people. We get it now. We understand the divine relationship because when he is winning, we are winning because we are one body. And over the years that you've expended praying, praying for families, encouraging and counseling, standing with people in crises and preaching, we've seen victories in our lives. We've seen victories in our families because this man has been faithfully lifting up his arms for you, interceding for you. And as he waits for that procedure to fix that valve, 
and he faces the frustrations and the limitations of human weakness, that's when we come up alongside and we hold him up, right? Because we want him to know that we know. We might not hold the stick, but we hold you. And as we do that, believe that you will see the enemy routed and we will experience the supernatural strength of God coursing through us for the fight and we will watch the threats of the enemy melt away and this place will erupt in worship as God brings glory to himself. Come on, why don't you stand on your feet and give God praise this morning. Just lift up a shout this morning. Come on, put your hands together and praise God who always makes you conquer through Christ Jesus. Victory came on that hill through the failing strength and the outstretched hands of Moses. I want you to picture that hill in your mind. On that hill overlooking that battle were three men. One of them was a prophet, Moses. And on one side was a priest, Aaron. And on the other side was a man who represented nobility, her, from the tribe of Judah. If you remember in the book of Genesis, the, prophet, the prophecy over Judah was, from your tribe will come the, the, the rod of authority, the rod of kingship will not depart from beneath, between Judah's feet until the one comes to whom it belongs. In other words, all of the kings will come through you until the king of kings takes that scepter. Prophet, priest, king. And there was a hill where victory came for all of us. And on that hill, as the strength left the body of the Son of God, who was a prophet and a priest and the king from the tribe of Judah, as he stretched out his hands on the cross and took our sin and our shame, he was putting to shame all of the powers of darkness that sought to destroy your life. Give him praise in his house this morning for what he has done for you.